turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. In our study on the book of Revelation, we're in chapter 12. We're talking about that timeless uh, conflict between the dragon and the woman, between Satan and the seed of Israel. But I want to jump back to the very beginning because in this chapter there are some allusions made to the beginning of all things. And so it behooves our discussion. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. This is the serpent that came and tempted Eve in the garden. Yea, God hath said, but this is what He really meant. A common attack, a common temptation down through the ages given to many to cause them to question the power and authority of God's Word. Go to the seminaries today. Go into many of the churches and the preacher will sit up here and beat around the bush with God's Word. Yes, it says this, but it really means this. Or I know it says this, but you've got to remember the culture in which Paul was living. It's an old tactic. Right there in the Garden of Eden, we need to have eyes to see and ears to hear where that's concerned and put our trust in what God has inspired by the mouths of His apostles and prophets, and what He's preserved down through the ages. That is where our hope is. That's where our bedrock is. That's where we should go to seek the will of God. Notwithstanding, this serpent tempted Eve. She fell for it. And because of her, his desire to please his wife and not stand up against her, Adam knew what would happen and he went along with it. And creation fell. And the curse came. Sin came into the world. Genesis does not identify the serpent. Nowhere in the Scriptures is he identified specifically until the very chapter we're studying in Revelation. The serpent's introduced at the beginning of the Bible. At the end of the Bible, we're told exactly who he is. Now, we know who he is, but we're told specifically in this chapter that the dragon is the devil, that old serpent. Look at verse 15. The serpent is cursed as a creature, but as Satan, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Not his seed. The seed is of the man. The seed comes from the man. I'm not going to go into biology to explain that, but the seed is from the man. But what God says is the woman's seed would be at enmity with the serpent. That's very interesting. It shall bruise thy head. The seed of the woman shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Now that word bruise in English carries a very strong meaning that's been watered down these days. When we talk of bruise, we think of a little blue spot on the arm or leg. But bruise in the English of the day in which the King James translators translated means to crush. Okay? So, the serpent would have his head crushed by the seed of the woman despite the fact that the serpent would crush or bruise the heel of 
that same seed. Now you can have your heel bruised or crushed and survive. You can't have your head crushed and survive. It's over. And so right here in Genesis, we have what in Latin has been described as the Proto-Evangelium, the Bible's first gospel. This is the first prophecy of Messiah in the Scriptures, and He is identified as the seed of the woman. Now that's something to remember, because what's happening here in Revelation 12 telescopes all the way back. It tells us why Satan is so bent on destroying God's people. Throughout history, he attempted many times to destroy the seed or to prevent the seed from coming. And then once the seed came and he could not destroy him and he rose up from the dead, he turns his attention toward destroying the woman who produced the seed, the nation of Israel, and the remnant of her seed, the church, and later on the tribulation saints. It all goes back to this prophecy. And you have to ask yourself, why was Satan so intent upon deceiving and leading Adam astray? And why is he so angry at the concept of a seed coming and sitting and ruling in a certain place. Something worth considering. But go to Revelation 12. We've been studying this for a few weeks and we're moving ever so slowly. Revelation 12, we talk about war in heaven. First four verses introduce us to the two main players here. There's several characters introduced in chapters 12 through 14, but only two of them John saw as great, amazing wonders in heaven. Great signs. The woman who represents Israel and the dragon who we see identified in verse 9 as Satan. Today we're going to move into verses 5, maybe verse 6, and talk about the underlying cause. What is the cause of this war? Every war has underlying causes. In fact, the mishandling or mismanagement of victory in war often leads to subsequent war and conflict. You want to know why we had World War II? Because of mismanagement and failure to do what was right at the end of World War I. World War I and the Treaty of Versailles guaranteed World War II. You'd think we could study history and learn from these things. But the only thing men never learn from history is that men never learn from history. But war has underlying causes. Oftentimes they're not as simple as the history books make them out to be. The war between the states was not a simple issue over slavery. Anybody that teaches that doesn't know history. Doesn't know facts. Oftentimes the victors are left the spoils of writing the history. So one side that may have been more constitutional and more in favor of a government of the people, for the people, and by the people is demonized because the victors write the record. And that's part of the spoils of victory. But this war, like all earthly wars, has underlying causes. What's the underlying cause of all war that involves Islamic nations and Islamic peoples? 
It's a religion that demands conquest and subjugation. That's the underlying cause. That's the underlying cause for the, the, the Twin Towers in New York. That's the underlying cause for what going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's the underlying cause for the persecution that Christians suffer in Bangladesh. It's the religion of Islam, not a religion of peace. Muslims have never been significant in American history. That's ridiculous. Okay? Um, the underlying cause is the nature of Islam. Conquest, subjugation to a God that looks far more like the dragon than he does the God of Israel. But all wars have underlying causes, and we'll see here in Revelation chapter 12 uh, that this does as well. So we're going to get into that, but let's look at verse 4. Last week we said that we're still talking about the, the, um, one of the main players here, the dragon. Well, last week we read that uh, he had seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns upon his heads. Those seven heads represent... Seven kingdoms throughout history from the beginning until this time of tribulation that were controlled by Satan for the purpose of persecuting and destroying national Israel while she was in the land. Assyria, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then, of course, a revised Roman Empire that we'll see here at the end of time. This perfectly agrees with Daniel's Gentile kingdoms in the book of Daniel. And then in verse 4 it says, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. This woman is Israel. She was ready to be delivered, as we'll see in verse 5, of a man-child. And Satan, the dragon's first and primary purpose was to destroy that man-child as soon as it was born. Who is the man-child? It's the seed of the woman that was prophesied to crush the head of the serpent. Therefore, the serpent stands ready to devour it as soon as it is born. So here in verse 4, we have an allusion all the way back to Genesis 3.15 in the second half of the verse. The seed of the woman is alluded to. Back to Genesis. Okay? Then we see in verse 9, we're going to skip down, that this dragon is identified as that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So we have a second allusion back to Genesis. Okay? In verses 7 and verse 9, we have references to the dragon's angels. So when you couple all this together, it makes sense to me that the first half of verse 4 is also alluding back to the beginning of time. What does it mean when it says his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth? Well, it's alluding back, I believe, to the fall. The very thing Jesus describes Himself when He makes a bold claim concerning His divinity. Turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to get into a little bit of a topic this morning that's not essential doctrine. It's very controversial, but I call them like I see it. When I study the Scriptures and compare Scripture with Scripture, we shouldn't be afraid to approach these things. 
And I think it causes a lot of things to make sense. But look at Jesus' words in chapter 10 of Luke, verse 18. And He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Jesus said He personally observed an event that took place before, at the beginning of time. I saw it. Just like He said at another place in the Gospels to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So Jesus claimed to have interacted with Abraham and said, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be an eyewitness of events that took place before mankind. A bold statement of His divinity. So when Jesus never refers to Himself as God, as Muslims and others would claim, then they fail to see very plain instances of Jesus accrediting to Himself things that could only be accredited to God. He does call Himself God anyway. I showed you an example of that last week. But this is how the fall of Satan is described. He fell as lightning from heaven. When he fell, he had angels with him. He fell from a position of power and authority. From a place of residence. But down through the centuries, he has retained access. He fell from a place of residence, but he's retained access. As in the book of Job, he approaches God and challenges Job's integrity. God allows him to... Test Job. And he does that even now. The Bible says in Revelation 12, we're going to see later in the chapter that he is the accuser of the brethren, accusing them before the throne of God day and night. Now there's coming a time when he he lost his residence, but he'll lose his access too. And then he's really ticked off. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the chapter. But we have this drawing of a third of the stars from heaven. I believe this is a reference back to the fall when Satan fell like lightning from heaven. And when he fell, he took with him a third of the host of heaven. This rebellion involved a third of the morning stars, a third of the sons of God who all rejoiced, it says in Job, when God laid the foundations of the earth. In Job... When, when, when God is revealing who He is and His might and His strength and it causes Job to be silent, God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You see, at that time, all the morning stars sang and all the sons of God rejoiced. That was an event that happened prior to the fall of Satan because all the sons of God rejoiced. But there came a time when one attempted to rebel. When did this happen? When did this happen? We know it had to happen before Genesis 3. But when? Turn to Jeremiah. When did Satan draw a third of the stars from heaven? When did he fall like lightning from heaven? I think the Scriptures give us some clues... If you look at the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
He laid the foundations of the earth. All the morning stars, the sons of God sang together. And, verse 2, the earth was without form and void. That means desolate and empty. And the waters covered the face of the deep. There was darkness. And then we go into God's creation of the present order. And we go to where Adam is told to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. To replenish means to fill up something that was once full but's now empty. But look at Jeremiah. Those words in Genesis in Hebrew, it's tohu vabohu. Formless and void. It's used of the earth in its chaotic state at the beginning. But look at Jeremiah chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 23 through 26. The prophet is given a vision of the earth. And then God ties it to what He's going to do with the people of Judah. God's going to judge the people of Judah. Much like He judged the earth at a point in history. But unlike what He did before, He's not going to wipe them out. He's going to preserve them. So He's drawing a contrast between what He did at one time and what He's going to do with the people of Judah that had turned their backs on God. God was going to judge them just like He judged the earth before, but unlike before, He wouldn't make a full end. He would preserve a remnant and restore it. So that's the contrast being drawn here. So Jeremiah is told in verse 23, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. The exact same phrase we find in Genesis 1-2. When has the earth ever been without form and void in this present world? Was it without form and void when Noah was in the ark? No, because there were mountains that peaked up. There were olive branches floating around on the water. There were birds. Okay, There were lots of things. But Jeremiah seeing the earth when it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. Were the heavens without light when Noah floated the waters of the ark? I beheld the mountains and they trembled, and all the hills move lightly. I beheld and lo, there was no man. Was there man on the earth when Noah was in the ark? Yeah. All the birds of the heavens were fled or they were gone. That word means absent, not there. Were there birds with Noah? Yeah, they let him know when it was time he could leave the ark. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by His fierce anger. For thus hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. So, the contrast is drawn here. Jeremiah sees the desolate earth. And in like fashion, God would desolate the land of Judah. But unlike before, He would not make a full end. So at some point, the earth was judged by God and He made a full end of it. Unlike that, God would desolate the land of Israel but not make a full end. Well, when was the earth made a full end? It didn't happen with Noah's flood because Noah survived as did his sons. In fact, Shem was a man that appeared to be ageless 
because he lived so long after the flood and even lived almost up to the days, I believe he lived up to the days of Abraham. I don't remember the exact words. And so, in my opinion, uh, the pre he did live into the life of Abraham. He almost lived up to the, the days of Jacob and Esau. But that, in my opinion, uh, uh, tells me that the priest of the Most High God that Abraham offered up tithes to, who seemed to be without days, was Shem. The one who preserved the truth about God after the flood. A type of Jesus Christ. But that's another story. That's another issue. But here we have the world described as without form and void in a manner much like is described there in Genesis chapter 1. There was something here, in my opinion, that God completely made a full end of. Destroyed. Something that took place. And then as, as a result, God did what He did in Genesis 1 verse 2 and so on and told Adam to replenish the earth. So, we're not told what happened between the beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 1 and verse 2 when he said, let there be light. Something happened, and it makes sense to me that that's what Jeremiah is referring to here. He's given special revelation to glimpse into that. Turn to Isaiah 14. I'm just simply trying to give you a time frame. When did this drawing of the third part of the stars of heaven take place? Isaiah chapter 14. The um, king of Babylon is discussed. Judgment is pronounced upon him. And then that we see that behind his reign is Satan himself. There's always a spiritual behind the physical governments of men. Satan was the... The king of Babylon was a type of Satan himself. Lucifer, the, morning, uh, the son of the morning. Verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven... O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? So at the time Lucifer fell from heaven, he was one who had weakened the nations. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So he had a throne. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness? and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. Who was Lucifer? Lucifer was one that had a throne. But his throne wasn't good enough. He wanted to go up. He wanted to move up through the clouds and actually sit in the throne of God. So what I see described here in the context of his fall is an attempted, an attempted invasion of heaven from earth. He had a throne. He had a place given to him by God for a purpose, but it wasn't good enough. So he wanted to ascend up 
through the clouds to a place for which he had access. He walked in the presence of God. He walked amongst the cherubim. He's the anointed cherub that covereth, it says in Ezekiel 28. And his place was in Eden. He had a throne in Eden. But it wasn't good enough. He tried to invade heaven and take over and be God. He's the one that made the world a wilderness and destroyed the cities. That's exactly what Jeremiah saw in chapter 4. He saw wilderness. He saw the cities all broken down. So when you put these two together, what I see, the fall of Satan involved an attempted invasion of heaven. And as a result, the world was made a wilderness. Everything was destroyed by God. He made a full end of whatever that kingdom was. Satan himself and the angels he took with him endured, but his kingdom was obliterated. Obliterated. He lost what was his. And then God recreated. And where did God, God put man? Where did God put man to rule? In Eden. The very place that Satan in whatever kingdom he was in ruled. No wonder he was so upset. Turn to Psalm 104. There's a judgment of a flood described here that's often assumed as talking about Noah's flood. But I think it's interesting to consider a few things here. Psalm 104. I'll just start at the beginning of the chapter. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Who coverest thyself with light as which with a garment. The God of the Quran does not cover himself with light, he covers himself with paranoia. This is not the God of the Quran, who stretched out the heavens like a curtain, who lays the beams of his chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks upon the wings of the wind. And then I think it's interesting in verse 4 we're told He makes His angels spirits, His ministers of flaming fire. And then we're told in verse 5, Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. He laid the foundations. He made the angels. They're His ministers. Then He laid the foundations of the earth. Then, in verse 6, what did He do? He covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. So following creation, the creation of the angels, the creation of the foundations of the earth, the earth was covered. Oh, okay, he's talking about Noah's flood. At verse 7, At thy rebuke they, that is the waters, fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hastened, or they sped away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys into the place that thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over that they turn not again to cover the earth. So we hear of a flood here. And we assume, well, that's probably talking about Noah. How did the waters go away with Noah's flood? Did they flee away hastily at God's rebuke? Or did they abate and assuage? It says it took, that they decreased, it was over a period of 150 days when you read Noah's account. The water slowly abated and then the mountains appeared. But what we see here is that God rebuked the waters and they sped away and they went to a place 
with a boundary. They were gathered together into a place for a boundary that they should not pass over that boundary forever or completely. Or completely cover the earth. In a permanent sense. That sounds a lot to me like Genesis chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. It says in the creation account, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Immediately. The waters were gathered. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called He seas. And God saw that it was good. And then we go to hear about how He told the land to bring forth. So what we have in Psalm 104, I think is an interesting order of events. We have reference made to God in the beginning, pre-eternal, decked and covered uh, with light. Then we talk about the original creation, the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Then we're told He created angels as ministering spirits. Then we're told that He laid the foundations of the earth. Some sort of kingdom related to these angels. Then, He covered it with a flood. And then He rebuked those waters and we see what happens in Genesis 1, 9 and 10. He divided the sea between the dry land. So, apparently this is a reference to what I call Lucifer's flood. There was a judgment upon the earth that was the result of Satan's rebellion. There was a pre-Adamite world that was completely overthrown by a flood. It had birds, it had men of some sort, it had cities, it had fruitful places according to Jeremiah 4. So if you want to look at the timeline, creation. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 all the morning stars, all the angels rejoiced at this. Job 38. Lucifer, the anointed cherub, he ruled in Eden. It says in Ezekiel 28, he was in Eden, the garden of God. He was the caretaker of God's garden in the original creation. He had a throne. He was able to access God and walk among, among the seraphim. He was an anointed cherub just like those beasts covered with eyes in Revelation 4 that say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lucifer was the steward of God's garden here on earth. He was the ruler of whatever God put here. We, we don't know other than these very simple, uh, I mean these very uh, brief glimpses. But Lucifer decided... He wanted more than what God had gave him. He, a created being, wanted to be the uncreated one. And so there was an attempted coup, an attempted overthrow of heaven. He invaded heaven and he took a third of the stars with him. A third of those sons of God decided to join him. Isaiah 14, as a result, the nations were weakened. He rose up above the clouds. He wanted to be like the Most High. Just like in Revelation 12, 4, He drew a third of the stars of heaven with Him. Then what happened? He was overthrown in an instant. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This was an event, I believe, that predated the creation of Adam. And as a result, Jesus was speaking of Himself as 
pre-eternal. Eternally pre-existent. Very God of very God. Lucifer's kingdom was destroyed. His Eden was destroyed. Whatever lived here was completely wiped out by a divine flood that covered the earth. And when God was done making a full end of that destruction, He decided with the earth covered in darkness and covered in the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, He decided, let there be light. And there was light. Turn to 2 Peter. I don't like to make claims about things that are controversial without giving you Scripture to back it up and letting Scripture interpret Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3. Another passage that's often thought to refer to Noah's flood. 2 Peter chapter 3, 5 through 7. Talking about false prophets that are mo- or people like today saying, Where is this Jesus that's coming back? Everything's just happening the way it always is. The world's been here millions of years. Nothing's changing. Where is the promise of His coming? Verse 5, But this they, these people, these mockers, are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and then in the water. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That word there, perished, is a very strong word. It was obliterated. It's almost too strong for the flood of Noah's day. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So we have a contrast drawn between the heavens and earth of old and the heavens and earth of now. My question is, if this is talking about Noah's flood, did the heavens change with Noah's flood? Or did they stay the same? The heavens didn't change. God overflowed the world with Noah. But the heavens were consistent. Now, the canopy of the earth that gave it a kind of a greenhouse effect came crashing down and, and the colors and stuff that the, 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 the people before Noah would have seen have probably been changed. And what we see now is not the beauty that it was before, but as far as the stars and the planets and the things God made, it hasn't changed. So a contrast is drawn between heavens and earth of old and heavens and earth of now. And so, obviously what Peter's referring to is something before that, in which the heavens themselves were altered. Because what does God do in Genesis chapter 1? He puts the sun, He puts the stars, He puts the moon in the heavens. That wasn't there before as it is now. Okay, so we have another... Um, glimpse into God's judgment. Okay? And just like that old heaven and earth was destroyed, the heavens and earth now are reserved unto judgment. A judgment of fire. They will be destroyed as well. But unlike before, God will preserve the people that are His of this present creation into the future kingdom. 
And Satan will be destroyed. So we have, Lucifer, we have creation, we have Lucifer in his position of prominence. We have his attempted coup and invasion. Then we have his overthrow. And then we have God's recreation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 and following. He told Adam, replenish the earth. And then it says, God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And He put the man and the woman there. God planted a garden in His recreation on the very spot that Lucifer once sat upon a throne. Adam was given his job. And the serpent didn't like that. So he came calling and he came calling quite quickly. Just like we would be angry if our boss fired us and put someone else in our place. We wouldn't like that person. Even though they didn't have anything to do with it. That's where we get that from in our human nature. Because it was introduced there back in the Garden of Eden. Why is Satan so angry about God's people that he has made? Because God put mankind in Satan's place as in the place he originally was. And that's why Satan hates man and wants to destroy him and turn him against God. God's recreation. Then Genesis 3, man fell. Satan came and tempted him to get him to do the very thing he did and to suffer the very punishment. If I can't sit in Eden, then no one else is was Satan's attitude. And then when judgment came, we have that proto-evangelium. I'm not, God is not going to make a full end. Death came into the world, but I'm going to redeem it, God says. And the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head once and for all. Therefore, Satan's primary purpose from the beginning of this present creation is to destroy the seed of the woman. That's why in John 8, Jesus said Satan is a murderer from the very beginning. He has access to heaven, just like in Job 1 and 2, for the purpose of accusing the brethren. But we're going to see in this heavenly war, that access is revoked. Why such fury? Why such angry? Why can't he get over it? Why? Because the seed of the woman, Messiah, in effect, replaces Him as He was meant to be. He attempted to usurp God's place, so God's going to in turn take His place given to Him, and He's going to sit in it Himself manifested in the flesh, Jesus Christ the Messiah. God's like, okay, you're going to try to take my spot? then I'm going to take yours. I'm going to take yours by becoming the very flesh you tried to destroy. And I'm going to sit in your place on your throne. I'm going to rule over earth. God manifests in the flesh. That's why He hates Messiah. That's why He hates God. And He doesn't only hate Messiah, the seed of the woman. He hates Israel and the church. Because these in the millennial kingdom are elevated to sit with Him as His chosen instruments. Does that make sense or am I way off base here? Just because I'm 
discussing what some have called a gap theory between Genesis 1-2. and 1-2 doesn't mean that I believe evolution is true. You know, people tried to reconcile evolution with that theory because they thought that carbon dating was correct. They thought that fossils have to be millions of years old. That's not true. There's nothing left of the original creation. No bones, nothing. Death in the present creation, of which bones are a sign, did not come until Adam sinned. There's nothing left of that wilderness. So much so that God had to specially reveal it to His prophet. Because there's nothing left. So what we see today, according to biblical chronology, is about 6,000 years old. Certainly less than 10,000 years. These fossils aren't millions of years old. That isn't a presumptuous lie that people buy hook, line, and sinker. Lots of observable science indicates a very young earth. Evolution is not true. Never was, never will be. And if you as a Christian fall for it, then you're denying the very basis of what salvation is. If Adam wasn't in the beginning, and if death in this present creation didn't come with Adam, then Roman, you might as well throw the book of Romans in the garbage can. There was something before, but it has nothing to do with us now. But it explains Satan's fury. And it explains God for His purposes allowed Satan to endure as a fallen angel and to take angels with him that endure as an instrument of temptation in this present world. So man would choose to follow God. God, Man would fall, and God ultimately would get the glory by becoming man and paying the price and taking back what Adam delivered to Satan in the garden, the title deed of the earth, and sitting ultimately in Satan's place. So look at Revelation 12 verse 4. The first part, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the ground. This is the pre-Adamite creation. Second part of that verse, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Here we have the entire world history from Cain, the first attempt to murder the seed of the woman until the birth of Christ. Summed up in the second half of that verse. Verse 5. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Here we have the first advent of Christ and the entire church age summed up in a single verse. Verse 5. I mean verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now we're in the middle of the tribulation. So in those couple of verses there, all of world history is summed up. From the pre-Adamite world, Lucifer and his fall, down through the Old Testament, all the way to Messiah. And then in a sense, between verses 5 and 6, we actually have a gap. The entire church age. Just like we have in Daniel. The focus here is Israel. The church age from Pentecost until the rapture doesn't concern Israel primarily. And so just like we have a gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th week, the church age appears here between verses 5 and 6 from the ascension of Christ. And then we're, we telescope forward to the midpoint of the tribulation. 
So we have a telescoping of history here from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 12. It's a summing up of world history. An amazing thing. In the second half of verse 4, it says that Satan stood ready. The dragon stood ready to devour the seed of the woman as soon as it was born. Prophecy told us that the seed of the woman wouldn't just be the seed of Eve. She would be of the house and lineage of Abraham, of the house and lineage of David, the Jewish people. That is where the seed would come. It was prophesied throughout history. And Satan, from the beginning of time, has tried to keep that seed from coming into the world. From Genesis 3 forward, the dragon determined to prevent the birth of the promised seed. Or, if that was not possible, to destroy him after he was born. That's history in a nutshell. Human history. He tried it with Abel, the very first uh, descendant of Adam and Eve. It didn't work. He convinced Cain to kill him. Therefore, he's a murderer from the beginning. It didn't work because the promised seed would come through Seth. Genesis chapter 4. Chapter 6, he tried a different tactic. Some of the sons of God came down and mingled with the daughters of men, producing giants. He attempted to pollute the line of human descent. But Noah, it says, was perfect in his generations. Noah's line that came down through Seth wasn't polluted in this way. It failed. After human language was confounded at Babel, the fight narrowed down to one man and his elderly wife. When God came to Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham was 75 years old. And his wife was 65 and she was barren. Satan doubtless was behind Sarah's laughing at the situation because she was barren. He laughed at that thought. God's going to preserve seed through this barren woman? Satan may have had a hand in her barrenness. But to show Satan that he was in complete control and could easily work a miracle to produce the promised seed, God decided not to give her seed when she was 65, but to wait until she was past age. Just as old as Gigi here when her womb was open. I won't wake you up. I see you falling asleep over there. <laughs> wake up, wake up. God waited until Sarah was... Gigi's not 90. I, I, that was, uh, uh, I was... I was jumping. But she was, uh, she was older than Gigi when she became pregnant. And I don't know if Gigi and Amy can envision getting pregnant and giving birth to a child at their age, but that's what happened. God waited until Sarah was past age, 90 years old, to cause her to conceive and bear Isaac, the son or the seed of promise. You see, God can easily work a miracle. Abraham later would be tested on Mount Moriah. It says that God tempted Abraham. We know that God never tempts men with evil. But is it possible for it to say God tempted Abraham and yet Satan to be the one that actually was behind the testing. That's what happened in Job. God tested Job through the agents, allowed Satan question his integrity, and so God allowed Job to be tested. 
In a sense, I believe that Satan accused Abraham, the chosen seed. He doesn't truly love you. Okay, we'll, we'll, allow, you, we'll allow you to test him. It's kind of interesting, we see another example of this. Could I say God tempted Abraham and yet Satan did as well? Well, we see this elsewhere in the Scriptures. Matthew, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. Jason, if you'll look up 1 Chronicles 21.1. Here we have an interesting uh, description of the same event. Go ahead. 24.1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. God was angry with the people of Israel. And so it says, God moved David to number the people. Your verse, Jason. It's for Chronicles. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Who provoked David according to Chronicles? Satan. Is this a contradiction like the liberal would say? Or like the fool who would say, that must mean that Satan is God. No. God is above it all. And when Satan does anything, it's only because God allows it. So it can be said that God does it because God governs all things. Doesn't mean He's evil. But I think that's what happened with Abraham. I think, or I wouldn't build a doctrine upon it, but it makes sense to me that Satan in his effort to destroy the seed called Abraham's integrity into question and devised the plot to destroy that seed and used Abraham's integrity against it and God allowed him to do it. So in that sense, God tested Abraham. But the plan failed. What that teaches us is in in this created order, there is no good versus evil. There is no cosmic dualism. When Satan does it, God still governs it. It's not good versus evil. Everything's below God. Everything will happen according as God wills it. So Satan had his hand in this mess with Abraham on Mount Moriah, and it failed. And you know what his meddling ensured? At that point, his meddling ensured that there wouldn't just be a promised seed, but the seed would be God Himself. Genesis 22.8, Abraham turned to Isaac and prophetically spoke, God will provide not for Himself a lamb. God will provide Himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So Satan failed so miserably here that his meddling actually resulted in the fact or the unveiling that the seed wouldn't just be a man, it'd be God Himself. When, when Jesus hung on that cross, God provided Himself as the Lamb. So to destroy the promised seed, Satan discovered here on Mount Moriah that he would have to destroy God Himself. And he knew that wasn't going to happen. So now his strategy becomes in history not about destruction, but about prevention. Now it's not about destroying the seed because we know the seed's going to be God. As the lamb. So now I'm going to try to prevent that seed from coming. What happened? Isaac married Rebekah. She was barren. But Isaac prayed out to God. And God heard her prayer and opened her womb. The seed continued. Satan tried to stir up trouble. Enmity between Jacob and Esau. Just like he did with Cain and Abel. Hoping that 
Esau, in his justified anger, would murder Jacob, through whom Messiah had been prophesied to come. But Esau, amazingly, didn't play into his hand. Esau had every right to be angry, but he didn't act like humans normally act. Kind of an amazing thing. Turn to Genesis 33. i still got a few minutes. Y'all bear with me. Even though Gigi's kind of falling asleep, we'll uh, keep going. I thought I was preaching about interesting things that would keep you awake. <laughs> Genesis chapter 33. This was after Jacob came back from his time with Laban. He was a very rich man, very blessed. You know, he had stolen, he had deceived Esau. He convinced Esau to sell him his birthright. Then he stole his blessing. And that many years went by. And Esau had every right to be mad. And it was expected that Jacob was in for trouble. So he armed his servants and he divided them, preparing to have to fight. But look at verse 4. Or verse, uh, it talks about how he came into Esau's presence. And what did Esau do? Verse 4. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And then it goes on to say, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, who are these with thee? And he said, the children which God has graciously given thy servant. And then it talks about how they all came and presented themselves. Uh, and, and Jacob tries to say, you know, I want to give you this gift. And Esau says, brother, I have enough. Keep it for yourself. So Satan tried to stir up enmity, but it didn't work. And God acted to bring about true reconciliation between brothers. It doesn't have to be enmity. Sometimes we can expect that when there's a problem. We can become pessimistic. But the lesson is there can be reconciliation. Let's have a more optimistic attitude. And I'm preaching to myself as well when things go wrong. There was reconciliation here. Satan's plot was foiled. You know how old Jacob and Esau, how old do you think they were when this happened? About, about 97 years old. Old men. A family divided for years and yet a couple of old men reconciled. Satan wants people to go to the grave unreconciled. But it didn't work here because it involved the promised seed. Satan would later try to destroy all the Hebrew male children through Pharaoh to completely obliterate the male line of descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob altogether. But that plan was frustrated by a simple baby's cry that was heard in the bulrushes in the river. And it said Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on that baby, Moses. And God rose Moses up to lead the people out of Egypt. And you get down into Chronicles. It's very interesting. The promise, the line of descent hung by a thread. Not for one generation, but for three generations. King Jehoshaphat, a righteous king in the southern kingdom, had a son named Jehoram. It tells us in 2 Chronicles 21 verse 13 that he killed all his brethren. So he was the only... He wiped them all out because of his jealousy and because of his pride. And as a result, he alone, one man remained of the promised seed. Satan convinced him to kill everybody off, so now it had to come through that one man. 
When anything's dependent on one man, it hangs by a thread. That's why, husbands, we need to teach our wives how to do things and not try to keep it all to ourselves because when we die, we're robbing them of the ability to continue on easily. So, share what you, share the, everything as much as you can with your wives while you can with your children. Don't keep it to yourself. It says later that Jehoram would have children. He was the only one left. And you go to 2 Chronicles 21 and 22, the, it says that the Arabians, a band of Arabians came and killed all of his children except one, the youngest, Ahaziah, which would become the next king of Judah. So you had one man kill his brethren. He's one man who had a bunch of children. And then some invaders came and killed all his children so that only his youngest child son remained. So in that next generation, whittled down to one man. And then when you get into 2 Chronicles 22 and 23, all of Ahaziah's children were slain by his wicked queen mother. But only an infant son was rescued and hidden in the temple for six years by his aunt. A third successive generation, the promised line of descent hung by a thread. One man. Turn to 2 Chronicles. Bible drill, Bible drill. Just ensuring we visit every book before we end this study. 2 Chronicles 22. God had raised up Jehu to judge the house of Ahab. Even that part which had intermarried into the southern kingdom of Judah. In verse 9, it says that Jehu sought Ahaziah and caught him, for he was hid in Samaria. And he, brought, it was, he was brought to Jehu, and when they had slain him, they buried him, because they said he is the son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. So the house of Ahaziah had no power to keep still the kingdom. Jehoram killed his brothers. He alone was left. The children of Jehoram, all except Ahaziah, were killed by the Arabians. One man... Through one man, the seed, the line of seed remained. And then when Ahaziah was killed, he obviously had children, and then he was killed as a result of God's judgment. And then in verse 10, but when Athaliah, the mother, the queen mother, saw that her son was dead. Athaliah, if you study it, was actually a daughter of King Ahab. So she was wicked, just like her mother Jezebel. But when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead... She arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. So in the third generation, Satan acted to destroy the entire seed royal that had been prophesied from David, that, would, that Messiah would come from David. So if she would wipe him out, then God would have to change His Word and His Word wouldn't be fulfilled. But, verse 11, Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. So Jehoshabeth, who was the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. Then turn to uh, chapter 23, verses 9. 
And then it talks about in verse 9, Moreover, Jehoiada the priest, this is years later, six years later, delivered to the captains of hundreds spears and bucklers and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he said, All the people, every man having his weapon in his hand, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar in the temple, by the king round about. Then they brought out the king's son, Joash that was six years old, and put upon him the crown and gave him the testimony and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, God save the king. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people into the house of the Lord. And then it goes on to say she saw the son of her son and she rent her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. Then of course the people rose up and slew her. Three successive generations in Jewish history, the Jewish seed royal was reduced to one life. And it hung for six years in the balance with a small child that had a sentence of death on his head. Satan trying to prevent the coming of the seed. But it prevailed. Satan, Satan, Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. That has been his modus operandi since the Garden of Eden. And we know why he's so angry. During the Babylonian captivity, Satan tried to destroy the whole nation of Israel. Not just the seed royal, but the whole nation through Haman's plot involving the king of Persia. But a very little thing, a very seemingly insignificant thing, a king's tossing and turning, a king's sleepless night foiled the entire plan. Guys, it's the little things that God uses. Not the mighty things of this world, but the little things to accomplish His will. A baby's tear. An ant's hiding her nephew in a temple. A king's sleepless night. The saga of Revelation 12 verse 4 is long. Long, long, long. Those are just a few examples of where the seed of the woman and its preservation was in doubt, but God preserved it. When God says He's going to preserve something, He does it. We talked about the things God preserves. Four things. The earth. He preserves it. Man will not destroy it. God will destroy it. He preserves what? God gave the word of the Lord is pure words. As silver trod in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them. He's preserved His word. So don't give me this garbage about the Bible was only inspired in the original manuscripts and so we don't have those and you know there are a few things we can't be sure about. No, God gave the Word, He inspired it, and His inspiration demanded He would preserve it perfectly. I believe He has done it in our language. I'm confident when I read this King James Bible, when I study history and believe God's promises. Eventually, despite a long saga, the promised seed would be born. The Lamb... Of Genesis 22, God will provide Himself a lamb. He would be born. And Satan would have to revert back to a strategy of destruction. It was no more about prevention because the seed had come. Revelation 12, 5, And she brought forth a man-child. Who is the man-child? 
He's the third personage in this parenthesis in Revelation. We have the woman, the dragon, now we have the man-child. And it says in verse 5 that He would rule all nations with a rod of iron. Messiah's kingdom will be autocratic, not democratic. Autocratic. That means His will will be supreme. It won't be tyrannical like a sinful dictator, but it will be supreme. There won't be politics. There won't be lobbyists, praise God. The lobbyists rule this country. No politics, no lobbyists, no oppression of the, of the masses, no protesters, no liberals, no conservatives, no Republicans, no Democrats. No. His will, Messiah's will, will be supreme. And you know what Micah chapter 4 tells us? It tells us there will be equal rights for all. And every man will sit under his own vine and his own fig tree. Praise God. Forget about this garbage here in America, this political circus. It won't bring you your own vine and your own fig tree. Democracy will never bring you that because dem democracy is, is dependent upon men doing what's right. And when you remove the moral restraints of God and His Word from a society, democracy becomes tyranny. That's why our founding fathers warned us in America that this constitution, this government would only work when we have a moral framework. The framework of God's Word. That has been removed. So what we have won't work. You can go cast a vote in November if you want to. Personally, I'd rather save my gas money or, or just go to the, the school, the, the precinct and preach. You can do it if you want to. But it doesn't matter who's elected because it's not going to work. Until the Bible is brought back, it ain't going to work. So, you're just being a part of the game. The selection of 2016, not the election. That's just one man's opinion. Don't put your hope in Republicans and Democrats, or Democrats and Republicans, or liberals and conservatives. Look for the autocratic rule that's coming with the man-child. A rule... Without politics, without lobbyists, without oppression, but equal rights for all under a righteous king. And you'll have your own vine and your own fig tree. Nobody will take it from you. Eventually this seed was born, the man-child in verse 5. Satan had to try to destroy him then. He knew he was trying to destroy God. He knew the chances were very slim, but he's going to try anyway. To that end, he prompted who? To slay all the children of Bethlehem two years and under. King Herod. But a simple thing. A dream. God warned Joseph in a dream. And because of the gifts of the wise men, they could afford to make that journey in the night to Egypt. And Jesus, the Christ child, was protected from Herod until his death. This is all the underlying cause for this war in heaven. Satan gets madder and madder because every plot is foiled. Every one of them. Satan actually tried to destroy Christ before he went to the cross several times. It didn't, during the temptations, he tried to convince Christ to throw himself off the temple. It didn't work. Jesus said, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. 
Turn to Luke chapter 4. I've actually been to where this happens. And if Satan had succeeded, Christ would have died. His human body would have been broken on the rocks. Jesus was in Nazareth preaching. He preached some very blunt words. Luke chapter 4 verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Then go to verse 24. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah or Elias when the heaven was shut up three years and six months when great famine was throughout the land. But unto none of them was he sent except unto Sarepta, a city of Zidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed saving Naaman the Syrian. And they all in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they may cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Satan tried to have him thrown off the cliff. Didn't work. Two storms were sent on the Sea of Galilee to destroy Jesus in the boat. What did Jesus do? He rebuked the wind and the waves. Friends, you can't rebuke a thing. You don't rebuke a thing. You rebuke a person. When Christ rebuked the winds and the waves, He rebuked the one who had caused them for His destruction. Satan is allowed to have his part in the weather of the world, my friends. It's still God's judgment, just like the numbering of the people. But Satan has his way. I find it interesting. I've been studying uh, how... There's an increasing number of people, in, particularly in Western countries or in, where we deny God and deny Satan, America, Canada, the wil- in wilderness areas that go missing for unexplicable reasons. And what often immediately follows is very strange weather that prevents searchers from finding any clues. And it's happened time and time and time again. Not, not quite unlike what Satan tried to do there on the Sea of Galilee, but it didn't work. Jesus rebuked the one behind it because He's above all of it. In Gethsemane, He tried to kill Jesus through physical exhaustion, agony, so that He sweat great drops of blood, but the angels ministered to Him and it didn't work. Therefore, through the agencies of Judas, Judas the Sanhedrin, and Pilate, Satan thought he had conquered when Christ went to the cross. He knew Christ had said He would lay His life down, but He was dead. He knew the prophecies of the resurrection, but he thought, maybe I've got a victory. And to make doubly sure, he orchestrated the sealing and the guarding guarding of his place of burial. Did it work? The stone was cast aside. The guards fell down as if they were dead and Christ rose from the grave. And friends, after this point, Satan's rage knew no bounds. Revelation 12, verse 5, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up unto God and to His throne. What's that a reference to? The ascension. 
The ascension of Christ. The history of the physical seed of Abraham, Israel, and the spiritual seed of Abraham, the church, has since this catching up unto God, this ascension, been a long story of irrepressible conflict between the dragon and God's people. Look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. As a Jew and as a pillar of the church. Give me just a few minutes. I'm coming to a good ending spot. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 Paul's telling the Thessalonians, I wanted to come unto you, but I wasn't able to. Verse 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but... What happened? Satan hindered us. I know what that's about. Do you know what that's about? Do you know what it's about to have Satan hinder you when you're trying to serve God? That is the story of the church in all of the church age. If there is no irrepressible conflict in your ministry, in your Christian walk, then you're not a threat to the dragon. And that's a sign of a dangerous place in terms of your spirituality. Irrepressible conflict is part of it. Ask Esther about that. Every time the brethren in Bangladesh try to serve the Lord, problem after problem after problem. Why? Because the dragon wants to stop it. He hates the seed of the woman. Why do you have problems in ministry? Why does it seem everywhere you turn, always something... Because the dragon hates the spiritual and the physical seed of the woman. But the Bible says, in all these things we are more than conquerors. That these trials that God allows are more precious than gold. Because they cause us to trust Him. And not our own efforts. And not our own works. If a ministry is not characterized by the irrepressible conflict that comes between the dragon and the seed of the woman, in a spiritual sense, of course, where the church is concerned, then something's not right. So when you can say, I, my church has grown, we've got all this money, God's blessing us, and everything's okay. Uh-uh. Let me hear of someone who is oppressed on every side. Someone who doesn't have the money he needs when he thinks he needs it. Someone who's constantly being persecuted and yet he's preaching the Word of God as it is in truth. Those are signs that this man is blessed of God and he will endure. Irrepressible conflict. Paul said Satan had hindered them. But he couldn't completely stop it. Paul was able to write to the Thessalonians. And his writing was more powerful than its visit because it endured and it became part of the canon of Scripture and it encourages us even today. So Satan thought he was hindering Paul when in, a, in essence, what his hindrance created something greater. A letter to the church that God intended to be part of His Word. Amazing. Now, as the time draws near for the kinsman redeemer to return and claim what is his, what was purchased at the cross, we talked about all that with the title deed of the earth in Revelation 4, He's coming to rule and reign over the earth as Lucifer once did way back in the very beginning to sit on the throne as the promised seed who will crush the head of the serpent 
Satan's going to make a last-ditch effort. A last-ditch effort to oppose this return. To break out and foil it. And that's the world war in heaven we're reading about now. It has a heavenly campaign, short-lived. And then we're going to see an earth campaign where he makes a last-ditch effort. He can't destroy the seed, but he can destroy the woman. He can take everything possible with him when he goes. You know, when I think about this latch-ditch effort, I like Civil War history. I'm rereading some stuff now that I read years ago, but it kind of reminds me of in 1865, the city of Petersburg was under siege, as was written by an, as was Richmond by an overwhelmingly superior Union army. And it came to the place that the Confederates realized we got one chance. We're going to have to make a last-ditch breakout effort and flee and take as many of them with us as we can. That's the only thing we can do, and it's probably not going to succeed. And so General Lee of the Confederate armies orchestrated an all-out breakout from Petersburg to try to save the government and flee south, and it failed. Just like he knew it would. And a few days later, to stop the bloodshed, they came to terms at Appomattox Courthouse. That's what's happening here with Satan. At that point in the Civil War, it was over. It's just a matter of time for the South. In my opinion, unfortunately, in American history. But it is what it is. God is sovereign. Okay? But that's what this is. It's like an all-out breakout effort. It's not going to work. It's going to fail. It's going to look like it's going to work for a short amount of time. Three and a half years. That's short on God's timetable. But it won't work. An all-out assault on the woman Israel... And in this context, the remnant of her seed. Verse 17, chapter 12. In this context, we're talking about the tribulation saints. Those that believe the gospel by, by the Jewish witnesses. The church is no longer on the earth at this point. Between Revelation 12.5 and 12.6, we have the gap of the church age. So what happens after verse 6 doesn't concern the church in its tribulation context. As Christ was caught up at the Mount of Olives unto God, so His body, the bride of Christ, is caught up to God before the 70th week. So right here in verse 5, the catching up is talking about two events that in terms of Israel's plan and purpose are really the same. The catching up. The catching up of Christ Himself on the Mount of Olives and the catching up of His body or the bride, which is the rapture. So this catching up would include both of those events in this very brief summary, and then we're right here in the middle of the 70th week. Okay? We're talking about underlying causes of this war. Verse 5, it's the man-child. His future rule. Verse 6, Despite Satan's attempt to obliterate the woman in this period of tribulation, God acts to give her protection. That protection is cause for the war. Satan is angry. Time and time and time again, divine protection has foiled his plans. And it will do so here at the end of time. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and threescore days. That's three and a half years. There's a place that the woman will flee in the tribulation. Antichrist sits in the temple of God in Jerusalem 
He proclaims Himself as God. Israel has to flee the land. Just like they did in under Babylon. But God's going to, He's got a place prepared for them to protect them. And Satan won't be able to obliterate her. And as a result, what does he do? Verse 17, he turns his anger on the remnant of her seed, the tribulation saints. That's why you come to Christ in the tribulation. You won't do it if you've heard the gospel now because God will send you great delusion, but those that do will pay for it with their life. So that's where, we're, where, where we will end today. Next time I'll talk about this place prepared of God. The Old Testament shine light, shines light on where this will be. Anybody have any questions? Does it make sense or am I way off base? See, a lot of preachers won't talk about topics like this because they've got to talk about something that makes sure everybody in the crowd is happy and everybody puts that check in the offering plate. I don't get, in a, I don't get a personal check from the offering plate uh, that because of what I'm saying. So I'll, you know, I'll say whatever I want and I, your elders don't take a salary either which uh, they should be taken care of for the work they do. And you guys do, but we can't be influenced by that. We've got to talk the truth of God even if it's difficult to digest. I don't have all the answers, but I think we can compare Scripture with Scripture and we can come to uh, reasonable conclusions. But praise God, in eternity, all the great mysteries from the very first foundation of the world will be unveiled. And we're going to see God's hands as, we, as He goes back and shows us. We're going to see His hand in things that we didn't even know was there. And it'll give us long, long years to, to, to reminisce and rejoice.